Well, good morning. It's great to see you again this morning. He who perseveres to the end will be saved, and you guys are, you guys are making it all the way to the end. So uh, thank you so much for your in being involved this week. Uh, it has been an absolute joy to be with you this week, and it, that's not just something I say, you know, because I'm a, I'm a visitor in a new place. I mean that. It, it, is, um, it is such a wonderful thing to be able to come and open the Word of God in an intense way over a period of days with people who love God and love His Word and are trying to think keenly about how we apply this stuff in a way that we live out the gospel in the world. And we are ministering to people in a way that their lives are being built up in the faith and the church is being built up. So I'm honest when I say that I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing all day today than than being with you and being in the Word together. And uh, so thank you very much for your attention and uh, for the uh, wonderful questions you've asked and for the insights that you've brought to the table. I do want you to think along the way today, if you will, about kind of what the Lord has done in you. If you remember back to the very beginning of the week, I said that my goal this week was to kind of set a framework for 2 Corinthians so that you would be able to go deeper. And I said that if there were just uh, two or three insights that the Lord just really drove home to your heart by the Spirit as we kind of unpack the Word, then that would be a good week, you know. And um, so I want you to think today as we're going along, what are the things that the Lord has spoken to you as especially relevant for where you are in your life and your ministry right now? What has he spoken to you in the pages of Second Corinthians that really has been driven home to you? And maybe a little bit later uh, in the day, we'll have a chance to just kind of come up for air for a moment and share that with each other as a word of encouragement to each other and a uh, way of maybe driving the truth home a little bit deeper as, uh, as the Spirit kind of ministers through us to each other as we think about this, this wonderful book. Um, as I said to you also in the beginning, 2 Corinthians is not an easy book. It, it kind of has a structure that's hard to get your head around. Uh, Paul is deeply bruised emotionally. Uh, he is at a place where he's kind of being broken open, if you will, and God's glory is shining out from a, a posture of brokenness. And so we find a lot in this book that is, that is challenging. He's dealing with bad people here. Uh, he's far away from Corinth. He hears about the false teachers making further inroads, and he is fighting for the life of the church. Uh, the church is spread out over a whole region. And you remember I said that's a key thing that a lot of times commentators miss. They think of the Corinthian church in terms of one central location and everybody kind of being right there together. But one of the challenges of the, of the problem of these false teachers is that these house churches are throughout Achaia, as Paul says in the introduction to the book. He's not only addressing those in Corinth proper, he's addressing those throughout Achaia. And so uh, that special challenge um, made it tremendously difficult for Paul to deal with the problem from from a distance. But what we come to today is uh, Paul turning from kind of preparing them theologically for thinking about proper Christian ministry, which we saw in the great center section of the book, uh, from that wonderful section we saw yesterday on giving in chapters 8 and 9, now he is going to turn full force, uh, giving his attention to the problem of these false teachers 
And interestingly, it's not like he speaks directly to them. In fact, a little Greek word, an indefinite um, preposition that he uses, tis. He'll say throughout this section, if someone says, he doesn't even give the false teachers the dignity of naming them. Uh, he leaves them indefinite as he is referring to them. And I think that that's rhetorically strategic as well. Um, but he is addressing them. And he's addressing the, uh, the Corinthians, kind of with these false teachers in the backdrop there, trying to get them to make a final decision. Those, those house churches that have not really repented and come back under his mission and, and apostleship and gospel, he's trying to pull those last house churches in at this point, And he does so in a way that is very forceful. And that's what we're going to see today in chapters 10 through 13. Does anybody need a copy of the curriculum? Anybody not have a copy of the curriculum? We've had a couple of people pop in over the past few days. Would anybody else need one? Everybody okay with that? Okay, uh, take a look then at the outline one more time. Go back to the beginning of your handout. And uh, let's one more time just get the big picture of what's going on here in 2 Corinthians before we launch into this final this final movement of the book. Now, it's going to be tough today to, uh, to get through these chapters. We're going to try to at least get through what is called the fool's speech in chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12. Um, but we're just going to kind of do what we've been doing. We're going to have a good time with it and sense uh, how we need to move in terms of your questions and getting the big picture and that kind of thing. But you're going to have to listen quickly today. So listen fast as we're working our way through, and we'll see, uh, we'll see how far we can get through today. But as you look at that structure, remember back to the prologue that Paul gives, where he gives this beautiful benediction. He's drawing them before the feet of, of God and praising God in this difficult moment, difficult church. He is praising and blessing God right from the start in this book in order to get the Corinthians Godward, God-centered, and as I told you would happen, we've seen throughout the book that constantly Paul is coming back to his posture of living out his ministry before God, uh, that audience of one. You know, he's very mindful of how his actions are affecting people around him. We saw yesterday, he said, even when we're carrying out this ministry of money, we're very mindful of how the way we've set up the money situation appears to those even outside the church, those in the broader culture. We want to do things that are honorable before the Lord, but we also want to do things in a way that, are, that, that is honorable before people generally. We want, in other words, we want to have such integrity, such clarity in who we are and how we do things that it lays the groundwork, I think, for the gospel with those, those outside. They can look at our life and our ministry, and they, they can say, you know, he's a good guy. He's doing things appropriately here, even according to the broader culture. So uh, Paul does have that sense of being aware of who's around him and thinking about the impact of his actions on, on unbelievers, but, uh, but especially his grounding is he is carrying out his ministry before God. And that, that, that is what I call a, uh, um, a, a construction of posture in, the, in terms of the Greek grammar there. He, he's carrying this out with a profound awareness, 
that God is watching what he is doing, all right? So uh, he starts there in the prologue. He shares with them openly and transparently about his own brokenness in Asia, how he was brought to a place he thought he was going to die so that he would not trust in himself but trust in God who raises the dead. He then moves, as we saw in this first big movement of the book, uh, to defending his own integrity because obviously what's in the backdrop of this is there were people, opponents in Corinth, who were saying publicly, Paul is not a good leader. He's wishy-washy. He told us he was coming at a certain time. He changed his plans and went on north into Macedonia rather than coming back to see us. And they are accusing him of all kinds of things. We're going to see later in this section that uh, there were people from a cultural standpoint who had a real problem with the fact that Paul would not come under the patronage of one of the wealthy people or more, you know, several of the wealthy people in Corinth. And Paul is actually going to talk about this a little bit later in the section we're going to look at today where he says, um, you know, I know this offended some of you that I wouldn't take your money. But he says, this is, this is my gift, my uh, choice to live out ministry before you in a way that I'm not dependent on someone for money. Now, we're going to, again, the, understanding the cultural backdrop and the values of, of the way the economics and social relationships worked in Corinth is very, very important for us to understand what is going on there. All right, so we're going we're gonna to talk about that. But he lays out in this great center section of the book, Uh, his own integrity, but more importantly, a theology of what authentic Christian ministry is all about. It's going through the world under Christ's lordship and his triumph, living out uh, life and and ministry in a way that the gospel is wafting out over the world like incense. And he says the natural result of that, there are going to be some who are saved, who rejoice in that. There are going to be some who are on their way to destruction who are going to react negatively to that. And so what he's doing there is he's setting up the fact that part of being an authentic Christian minister in the world is to get pushback from the world, to to suffer. And we saw uh, this develop into the suffering passage there in chapter 4. And in essence, Paul is saying to those in Corinth, who say, no, leadership's about being on top and being the, the person everybody thinks is great and having lots of money. It's not about suffering. Paul says, no, it is about suffering. Authentic Christian ministry, if you're bumping up against the power structures of the world, those power structures are going to push back and hurt you at times. And he says that's normal. In fact, that's the way that God carries the gospel forward in the world is on the back of suffering Look at Jesus himself. That's how the gospel has come to us, by the suffering of Christ who gave us this pattern. And so then we saw in chapter 5, he moved into talking about the resurrection, our great hope of resurrection, because he's thinking about, you know, life is, is, uh, is fragile, and uh, it's ultimately going to end in death. Everybody Paul was writing to, everybody in his world at that time is dead because this is a normal experience of human existence in life. And Paul is saying the great Christian hope is that though we know there is life after life after death, and that we're not just going to go be with the Lord, but at the end of the age, we're going to have resurrection bodies. And those resurrection bodies are going to carry us into the new heavens and the new earth. As we moved into chapter 6, we saw him move from this theologically rich center section into 
his appeal to the Corinthians, in essence, saying to them, come on, guys, those of you who have not embraced us in a fresh way, come on back to our side into the gospel. Re- be reconciled to God. Come back into proper relationship with God. And he wraps up with that section on not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. You know, uh, the, the relationships that you have in your life, he's saying to the Corinthians, are corrupting you. They're causing some of you to live lives of impurity. Uh, I was saying, saying to someone yesterday that when my daughter Anna was coming into college, uh, Anna is kind of a social butterfly in a sense. She loves people. She loves hanging out with people and having parties and doing all this kind of stuff. So when she was coming into university, one of the things we prayed about long and hard was that God would establish her in a community of young women and friends uh, who would be godly people, who would really impact her in a positive way. And God was so gracious, dropped her right down in the middle of a group of young women. Her uh, best friend, her roommate, Erin uh, Youngins is her name, is just, she's a nurse now. She just graduated with Anna in May. Godly, godly, godly young woman and has had a big impact on our daughter. But, but we prayed that because we knew the friend group that she landed in would have a profound effect on how she would develop in her own discipleship. And by God's grace, God gave her an awesome group of friends who really did affect her. So Paul is concerned about these Corinthians who have actually fallen in with these false teachers, with people who are manifesting more Corinthian values than they are Christ values. And so he's saying to them, come on, guys, time to separate and get to where you need to be in your, in your relationship with the Lord. Uh, so then he transitions in chapter 7. We saw back to his travel narrative. In 8 and 9, we saw uh, the, yesterday the whole thing about giving and him giving a theology of giving. I hope that made sense. We, we moved pretty quickly through that section, but I hope you grabbed hold of the principles there. One thing that you need to think about a lot and you need to pray about a lot in the South African context is how do we think well about the nature of money and about the nature of, of giving? I, I don't know your context very well yet at all, but I, I know enough from what I've been hearing from you that you have a lot of false teachers who are very centered on health and wealth kind of stuff. Sometimes in the church we can re- react so strongly uh, against that that then we you know, swing the pendulum back another way, and we just need to make sure that what is shaping us in our thinking is the Bible, the Scripture, and Revelation is really shaping us so that what we have is a church and Christians who are oriented to uh, voluntary, uh, sacrificial giving, you know, where, as we saw yesterday, the natural outflow of the gospel really taking hold of people's lives is that, that, that is manifest in their resources, so that it's just a joyful, natural thing for them to say, you know, God has blessed me with these resources, and man, I want to have an impact for the kingdom. And so my prayer is that the Lord will use you to shape the thinking of people in your ministries, in your life, to think biblically about the use of money. And I hope even yesterday, it was for me, I hope it was for you, an opportunity to kind of stop and say, okay, let me think about where, where am I? in terms of my resources and the patterns of giving I have and that type of thing, uh, we need to just keep coming back to the Scripture in that so that we're not just reacting out of even uh, Christian subculture kind of thinking, but we're really thinking biblically 
about how to marshal our resources and that kind of thing for the sake of the kingdom. There's a lot of money in the world. It's not a problem of money. There's a lot of money in the world. It's getting the money matched up with the vision of the kingdom. That's, that's really what we need to think about doing. So um, we saw that yesterday. Now, we turn to chapters 10 through 13. Now, let's, uh, let's take a look at the structure that you have here on the screen. We saw that section yesterday in point three. Now, point four, Paul confronts the malignant ministry of his opponents. Paul confronts the malignant ministry of his opponents. And this is in chapters 10 through 13. The first movement we're going to look at here in this hour is present or absent, Paul's authority is the same. This is chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. He's going to move from this in chapter 10, verses 12 through 18, into a consideration of proper over against improper boasting. Uh, Remember, we're dealing with a Greco-Roman culture here where advanced education had to do with the ability to stand up before a crowd and just wow a crowd with your speech. And in both Jewish theology, the Old Testament background, and in Paul's uh, kind of Jewish culture and the Greco-Roman culture, there was both proper ways to boast, to brag on something, to celebrate something, we could say, and improper ways of doing that. And so what Paul is going to do in this next section is he's going to talk about how the type of boasting he does, the celebration of the things of God and what God has accomplished, uh, is biblical. It needs to be set over against what the false teachers are doing, which is pointing at themselves and bragging on themselves and having a ministry that is self-centered, self-oriented, self-driven. And so we're going to see that in that next section. And then we get to this amazing section on uh, what what is called Paul's foolish, his his foolish speech. Uh, He boasts like a fool, and it's a brilliant, brilliant strategy that we'll get to there. But let's begin with this uh, section on present or absent Paul's authority is the same. If you remember, I said earlier in the week that one of the uh, kind of twin themes that you can follow through 2 Corinthians is this idea of Paul being present or absent. If you go back to his travel narrative, remember that's kind of a foundational issue that some people are concerned about. Paul's absent when he said he was going to be present. And uh, as he goes on through the book, he talks about him being absent, but now Titus is present. You know, so you have this theme of presence and absence that keeps recurring, and he's going to come all the way around at the end of the book and say, I'm absent right now, but I am going to be present soon, and we're going to have accountability, and people need to get with the program. Well, that kind of starts here at the beginning of chapter 10. So let's read. I want to read all of 10, 1 through 11, and then we'll go back and we'll take a look at uh, the steps in this uh, part of the text. Again, reading my translation. Now I, Paul, personally appeal to you by the leniency and clemency of Christ. I who am, quote, pitiful when face to face among you, but, quote, confident toward you when I am absent. When I am with you, please don't force me to act with bold confidence, which I think I will dare to use against certain people, 
who evaluate us on the false assumption that we conduct ourselves according to human standards. For although we conduct our lives in these human bodies, we do not wage war according to human standards. For our weapons used in warfare are not merely human, but rather powerful in God's service to the end that fortresses are destroyed. We tear down arguments and every rampart raised up in opposition to knowledge about God and take captive every thought resulting in obedience to Christ. And we stand ready to punish every disobedient act once your obedience is complete. You are looking at things as they appear on the surface. If anyone has convinced himself that he is from Christ, he personally should consider again the fact that just as he is from Christ, so are we. For even if I boast a bit about, or a bit more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for the purpose of building you up and not for tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. In order that I won't seem to be trying to terrify you with my letters, that's what some people were accusing him of, to quote a certain person, his letters are intimidating and make a big impression, but he is a pushover in person. And his public speaking is disgraceful. Such a person should consider this. What we are in word by writing letters when away, we will be in action when present. All right, go back to verses 1 and 2, and Paul begins with this assertion that um, he is being accused of meekness and weakness, uh, or he is being accused of weakness but he is actually living out an appropriate Christ type of meekness um, that is being misunderstood by these false teachers. Now, as we move into considering what Paul is doing here, um, think about the fact that we've had a turn here with verse 1. One of the reasons why there are scholars who have suggested what is called a partition theory of 2 Corinthians. They've said that 2 Corinthians is actually kind of a patchwork of different letters that Paul wrote at different times, and it's kind of all been stitched together uh, in order to make one, one letter. And one reason they say that is because you have moments like 10-1 where you have a big shift in the tone of the book, big shift. We saw back in chapter 7 that, man, he's celebrating the Corinthians he is, he is excited about where they, were, where they are, how they're doing, and these people would say, now you have a big shift in chapter 10, verse 1, to this very harsh, negative tone. Well, one reason for this, uh, I, think, I think it's very explainable from the rhetoric of the day. You have, for instance, in Cicero, Cicero talks about a moment um, where he, he uh, used in his letters uh, the broad... Uh, movements of the letter to deal with, you know, one main group of people that he was wanting to talk to, but he waited till the end of the letter to turn and address the people who were opposing him. And we see exactly that pattern here. Um, I think it's a rhetorical strategy. Uh, some people like Murray Harris think what may have been happening, remember Paul is writing this letter over a period of weeks probably, maybe even as he is traveling in Macedonia, and Murray Harris thinks one option is that um, Paul, when he met up with Titus, or maybe someone else came from Corinth following Titus, 
um, and gave him further news about what was going on. And Paul said, oh, we've got to address this. And already had the bulk of the letter written and then turned to these, these opponents and, you know, addressed them because of what was going on. I don't, I, I don't think it was that occasional, you know, that, that it was just circumstances that prompted him to do this. I think he has laid out 2 Corinthians to be rhetorically strategic so that he waited to confront the false teachers at the very end. You know why? Because then at the end of this section, he sets up and says, some of you have not repented yet, and guess what? I'm getting ready to come to Corinth here pretty soon. So he sets up the confrontation here at the end of the letter to kind of build tension in the air, if you will, in anticipation of him coming to town as a motivation for those who have not repented to get with the program and to really think through where they stand. Does that make some sense? It's, it, this is a bad analogy, but it's like when I was, when I was very small, uh, one of the most terrifying things that happened to me is my brother and I would have gotten in the scrape or I'd thrown a baseball through the window or whatever, and, and my mom said, well, we'll just deal with it when your dad gets home. <laughs> and so you're talking about long days. Those were long, long days, you know, as I was waiting for dad to come through the door, and I knew what was coming. It was not going to be pretty, you know, when we got to that point. Well, in a sense, rhetorically, that's what Paul is setting up here at the end. You actually have terms we're not going to go into, the inclusio. Remember I said an inclusio literarily was when an author would have words or phrases in one at the beginning of a movement and then have the same words or phrases at the end of the movement. He does that in chapter 10 through 13. Some of the words about being present and absent here in this passage show up again at the very end of chapter 13. And what he's doing is he's bracketing the section literarily to show that this is a unit. And what's more, what's interesting is in chapter 13, you also have a whole bunch of words that were used back there in chapter 1 that now are revisited at the very end of the book. That's also literarily significant, showing that the whole book is a unity. It's oversimplified, but, uh, but that gives you at least a, a beginning place to think about. All right, let's, let's walk through very briefly this uh, section on meekness uh, not weakness, and see what we see here. Well, he, he begins with a, an appeal here at the very beginning. Now, I, Paul, personally appeal to you by the leniency and clemency of Christ. In other words, he is not coming to them even in this very serious situation and demanding based on his authority that they fall in line. I think that is really, really significant. The posture Paul often has is not an authoritarian kind of posture that demands. It is an appeal on the base of the gospel and the character of Christ. And that is really, really significant. Uh, one of the things that we taught our children as they were growing up is um, it was called kind of the appeal process. I don't know if you've heard about that and being used with kids before, but for instance, as our kids got older and they were in patterns of, you know, working with us and, and being obedient and that kind of thing, if I came to them uh, and let's say they were in the middle of a movie and um, I just, you know, Pat had said, would you call the kids for dinner? And I may stick my head in the room and say, kids, mom says it's time for dinner. Come on. Well, the normal response to that was supposed to be, yes, sir, and get up and come. But as they got older, one of the things we taught them that they could do if they were in healthy patterns of relating to us 
is um, Joshua may say, Dad, can I make an appeal? And I would say, sure. And he would say, you know, we've been watching this movie for two hours, and we're in the last ten minutes. Would it be okay for us to watch the end of the movie before we come down? That's a reasonable request, isn't it? So what an appeal does is it, it gives you an opportunity to give more information and to have somebody come along voluntarily rather than it being an authoritarian thing that says, jump and jump now because I say so. Now, there are appropriate times in parenting that that's also, you know, that's what you got to do. Um, I have a friend who, she is in the corporate world. She's an HR director of a very large company. And, um, and she actually has used this type of appeal with her bosses. So in, instead of really setting up a conflictual thing, what she would do in that corporate context with her bosses is she, say, she would say, can I just appeal to you about something? In other words, what she's saying is, can I give you more information that will help you make the right decision here? And that's what Paul is doing. Instead of an authoritarian kind of demand, he is appealing to them on the basis of the character of Christ. He's saying, my posture towards you, even though, you know, I'm moving into a kind of a harsh, conflictual, you know, dialogue here, my, my posture is to appeal to you. Uh, I who am pitiful when face-to-face is the way that I've, I've translated this. Uh, this idea of, of being pitiful is somebody who was just not in a good place at all. Um, it's, it's, um, it's kind of the idea of um, someone who is miscalculating Paul as weak from a cultural and social standpoint, probably speaking about his speech especially, that he was not rhetorically powerful when he stood up in front of people. Uh, They're saying that he is really someone who is timid, the word could be translated. Someone uh, you would see that you would say just, boy, they are socially awkward and kind of pitiful. That's the way the word was used in that culture. Um, And he says that the way he's being described is as pitiful publicly, but someone who is really confident, and they would say kind of overbearing in his letters. So Paul is, is talking about this contrast. He's actually quoting someone here, I think. Someone had said Paul is really, you know, pitiful when face-to-face. He's really confident when he's absent, which is the accusation. Verse 2, when I am with you, please don't force me to act with bold confidence which I think I will dare to use against certain people who evaluate us, evaluate us on the false assumption that we conduct ourselves according to human standards. One of the things you're going to see in this whole section of 2 Corinthians is this revisiting of the theme of according to human standards. And what Paul is going to do over and over again is he's going to say, These false teachers are playing human games by human values, human standards. And he he would say, that is not the basis of what I'm doing. It's not the basis of what I'm doing. Um, He says that we are not going to play their games according to their principles and their values because they are conducting things in a way that according to the standards of the world... And Paul says, that is not where I am coming from. And he said, what is going to happen is, if I show up 
and this situation has not been dealt with, we are going to see where the power is. Because what he's going to do is he's going to say, God is going to get involved in this situation, which is going to be unpleasant. He comes around in chapter 13 to basically say that. He says to the false teachers, you want to see the power of God? You really do? And he says, if if I show up and people have not repented, you're going to see the power of God. God's going to bring, you know, to bear confrontation and judgment in this situation. And it's not going to be, these people who are kind of playing human games are going to find out there's a lot more to this than they think. And so what what he says here right at the beginning of this section is, I'm making a distinction between the way the false teachers are playing games and conducting themselves and what I'm all about. He's saying they are trying to evaluate me according to human, earthly way of thinking about things, and it does not fit who we are in our ministry and what we're doing in the world. Now, again, let me, let me just come up for air just for a second and say that you and I have got to, at times, press into Scripture and just open ourselves up and pray and say, Lord, am I kind of falling into just kind of the values of my culture and the patterns of my culture and the way that I'm thinking about these things? The way that I'm dealing with conflict, the way that I'm handling us thinking about the future of our church, the way that we're dialoguing. Are we just basically playing corporate games here, or are we really doing things according to biblical values and standards and processes and and that kind of thing? And it's not always easy to sort those out, but the way that we stay with that is by living deeply in the Scripture, growing in biblical theology. Because notice what happens now as Paul moves into his warfare imagery in this passage. The heart of this is about the way we think. It's why what what we're doing this week, what you guys are involved in in terms of ongoing, you know, biblical theological education here in South Africa is people are going to live out of the way that they think about the world, the way that they see the world. And Paul is going to say the, the, you know, the warfare that we're conducting is really a battle for the hearts and the minds of people in the way that they think. Because these false teachers are living according to human ways of thinking, worldly ways of seeing the world, assessing situations. And Paul says that's really not what we are about. Look at this next uh, movement here. Verse 4, for our weapons used in warfare are not merely human, but rather powerful in God's service to the end that fortresses are destroyed. We tear down arguments and every rampart raised up in opposition to knowledge about God and take captive every thought resulting in obedience to Christ. Now, I'm sure in your culture as in mine that a lot of times people simply approach spiritual warfare from the standpoint of the supernatural and, you know, it's, it's about manifesting the powers and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and Paul is saying that there is a spiritual realm here that's behind the battle that we're facing. I don't at all want to negate that. One of the things that, that happened before I came this week is I contacted my dear, dear friend and prayer partner, David Moore, who lives in England out from Cambridge, 
He's one of the godliest men I know. He's an older man. He's a prayer warrior. And the reason why I always contact David and say, David, I'm going to be in South Africa next week. Uh, if, if God does not intervene and get involved in what we're doing, it's going to be a mess. It's, you know, I'm just not in a place emotionally and spiritually where I need to be, you know, all of this. And I know I want people praying for us doing these kinds of events because it's not simply about, you know, do we have kind of the right intellectual stuff going on. It is spiritual when we are engaging the Word of God in the context of the church in the midst of culture, Right? It is a spiritual battle. It really is. But what Paul is saying at the heart of that spiritual battle, kind of integrated with that spiritual battle, is right thinking. It's not just about the manifestation of power or something like that. There is a way of thinking about God. There's a way of thinking about what God is doing in the world that is vital. And if you have wrong thinking, wrong theology... It is going to issue forth in wrong versions of the gospel, wrong ways of trying to do ministry, and wrong effects in the world. And so notice that at the heart of this spiritual warfare language is he is battling for the thoughts of people, for the way that people think. And later on in the book, he's going to talk about Satan's schemes as being schemes of deception in the way that people think and the way that they see the world. It's why what you're doing here through Truth Walk and in your church, um, it's why it is so, so vital as a ministry. Because you're trying to think through how can we continue to grow and educate ourselves. And I face the same questions for my life and our church and, you know, small groups that we're involved in. It's just the same question. How can we continue to grow in delighting in God's Word and being shaped by the Word rather than being shaped by the perspectives and the values and the thinking of the world. It's our ongoing battle. So let's look at the language that he uses here in terms of spiritual warfare and how do we conduct that according to God's standards. First of all, he says, we conduct our lives in these human bodies is the way that I've, I've um, uh, translated this. We walk katasarka according to the flesh. Now here, he's using this not just of human standards. He's kind of doing a play on words, but he says, we live in these physical bodies and we conduct ourselves in the world so that when he's walking around the streets of Corinth or Ephesus, people look at him and they see a human being who's living in the culture and going to the marketplace and that kind of thing. He says, we conduct our lives in these human bodies, this human uh, existence that we have here. And we do that, though, in a way uh, that is not merely human. In other words, it's according to a different set of standards, according to something that is behind the scenes of what is obvious in this world and physically. He uses the language here of we wage war. It is a battle. The term here, the verb, occurs in the New Testament seven times, and it often simply means to serve as a soldier to engage in battle of some kind. You see this in various passages, and it's often used metaphorically like it is in places like 1 Peter 2.11 and others to speak of how we are conducting Christian ministry and Christian life because metaphorically it is a fight. 
So Paul likes to use the word picture drawn from the work of a soldier or warfare. As he traveled throughout the Mediterranean world, he constantly would have been interacting with people who were Roman soldiers because they were everywhere in the Mediterranean world. So, for instance, uh, in Ephesians 6, when he's talking about uh, the use of the sword, or in Hebrews chapter 2, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, when he says that the word of God is quick and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He's referring there to the gladius, which was about 18 inches long. It it was a a short sword. Roman soldiers had great big swords that were used for hacking and open battle, but they also had at their side a gladius, which was uh, about 18 inches long, and it was a sword that had sharp edge down both sides because in close combat, you wanted to be able to cut both ways very quickly. So he uses this kind of imagery, and he says here uh, that we wage war. It's the battle, uh, or the language of battle here, and he refers to the weapons of our warfare. The the word could be used of tools, but here, I think contextually, he's really talking about weapons. But the imagery that he uses specifically here is 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 an aspect of battle in the world at that time. Can anybody tell me what was the number one most important thing? If you're a city that is being attacked by a a powerful force, what is the number one thing you need for your city if you're going to be able to withstand a battle of any kind? Can anybody tell me? A wall. In the ancient world, your defenses of the city, number one, above everything else, was a wall. Because if, if you had a, a structure that was a wall that, you know, an enemy had to come against, uh, then, then that was the number one thing that you needed. The Romans, though, were very, very practiced in what was called siege warfare. And that's the imagery that Paul is using here. What the Romans would do is they would come and they would build, they would bring siege engines, for instance, against a wall. At times, um, if it was a very difficult situation, the Romans might even build a ramp up to a wall that was dozens and dozens of feet high and, and actually bring their siege engines up that ramp. One of the most impressive things I've ever seen was in Masada. Have any of you been to Masada in Israel? And if you, those of you who remember, you know, Masada's the big mountain down there next to the uh, Sea of Galilee, uh, Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, excuse me. Um, and it's where Herod had built a fortress built into the top and kind of the side of this mountain. And, and if you go to the back, you can still see the ramp that's hundreds of feet high that the Romans built up the back of that mountain, basically to go in and overcome the freedom fighters who were, who were there. Uh, in Jerusalem itself, in 70 AD, what happened was the Romans broke through a series of walls to get to the freedom fighters who were in kind of the inner part of the city and eventually destroyed Jerusalem. So what he is saying here in his imagery is that the way we conduct our warfare is powerful to the end that fortresses are destroyed. So... In other words, these false teachers in Corinth are building up their defenses of their, quote, ministry, they're carrying out, leading people astray, 
there in Corinth, and Paul says, our ministry is like a siege engine that is coming up and is destroying their defenses by dismantling the way of thinking and seeing the world that they are kind of selling in Corinth. So he says that we are destroying fortresses. We tear down what? Arguments. And every rampart raised up in opposition to what? Knowledge about God. Do you see how theologically oriented he is here? How right teaching is at the center of what he's all about in this. And we take captive every what? Every thought resulting in obedience to Christ. So in this warfare imagery, it's not just doing battle against the powers. And I do believe that we can, can pray in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit against evil forces and evil spirits in the context of ministry that we're doing. Uh, that needs wisdom. I've seen people getting involved in this kind of you know, uh, deliverance ministry and that kind of stuff, and it become very damaging spiritually to them because it's a dangerous thing to be involved in. But, so I do believe that we ought to pray in Jesus' name that God would come against the enemy, you know, in the things that we are doing. But here specifically what he says is at the heart of the situation in Corinth is that people are being sold wrong thinking, false theology. And so Paul is going to dismantle that in the course of his ministry. He's going to relate them in such a way that he's going to teach them well the things of God so that it dismantles the way that they think. Um, just as an aside, we've talked some about biblical literacy, about teaching people a biblical worldview. I, I taught at a university the last 28 years that was really big on how do we shape a Christian worldview among students so that whether in the sciences or literature or whatever, they learn to think biblically and theologically about the things of God and the way that they look at the world and the way they approach their disciplines. And so you, you've got this kind of approach to worldview that is important. I think that one of the strategies that we need in the church is exactly what's being talked about with the uh, parenting ministry of the trips uh, that they're going to be here, is we've got to help families move that back to the youngest levels of, of thinking in children's lives so that as they're coming up, they're learning the things of God strategically, being shaped in terms of way of seeing the world and thinking about the world so that that's very integrated into the way that they approach life and think about life. And so just another aside there that biblical literacy needs to start early and in the family, teaching children to read, be keen readers so that they are readers of the Bible, you know, those kind of things because thoughts are very, very important. So Paul here um, talks about the, the warfare we conduct and is really for the, the minds and the hearts of, of people. Very quickly, look at what he says in verse 6, and we stand ready to punish every disobedient act once your obedience is complete. In other words, he's, he's speaking about the false teachers, but speaking directly to the Corinthians. He says, look, those of you who are out there in the house churches who are not kind of falling in line, we can move on with this program that God has started in Corinth once you guys step up and deal with this problem of the false teachers. That's, in essence, what he's talking about here. We're, we're ready to, to punish every disobedience, to kind of get everything where it needs to be 
um, once you guys get with the program and are, are just fully obedient to what you need to be obedient to, you are looking at things as they appear on the surface. <laughs> That's the way I've translated the, the language there. Um, it's, there's a, in the Greek grammar of that little phrase, uh, it could be a question. Some of your translations, anybody's translation have that as a question? Are you looking at things as they appear on the surface? could be translated that way, but I think he's making an assertion here. He's saying, look, you are thinking katasarka. You're thinking according to the flesh. You're just looking at things as they appear on the surface in terms of the culture and what's going on with these teachers. You're evaluating things in the wrong way, uh, but he's challenging them to move on with the situation. Uh, Just read with me, if you would, the the balance of of verse 7 down through verse 11, one more time. If anyone has convinced himself that he is from Christ, he personally should consider again the fact that just as he is from Christ, so are we. Now, he's alluding to the false teachers here, and um, he's, he's just asserting and saying, I really am a, a Christian, even though these guys are accusing me that I'm not. For even if I boast a bit more about our authority, which the Lord gave me for the purpose of building you up and not for tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it in order that I won't seem to be trying to terrify you with my letters, to quote a certain person. His letters are intimidating and make a big impression, but he's a pushover in person, and his public speaking is disgraceful. Such a person should consider this. What we are in word by writing letters went away. We will be in action when we are present. So here, this whole problem of the false teachers is he's just stating it very, very overtly. And he's setting up this conflict between him and the false teachers. And he's saying um, it is the the kind of situation where I am going to boast. We could say boast biblically, brag on the things of God. I'm going to celebrate the ministry that I've been given to minister to you. And it's not a ministry to tear you down, as these false teachers are doing. It's a ministry to build you up. And so he kind of, kind of concludes this first part by setting up the, the topic of boasting. That's going to move us into the next section on appropriate over against inappropriate boasting. And he's going to give one example of how the false teachers are doing things according to just the standards of the culture and how that contrasts with his biblical theological way of approaching boasting in the things of God. Okay, let's push the pause button there. Let's see if you have questions about this, this unit we've just seen. And then um, I have one brief application to make, and then we're going to take a break. And I think this will be a short break. But um, we're just going to kind of let the morning flow as it will, okay? So what questions do you have about this, about this section? Okay, we have one right here in the middle. And then we're going to have one from a sister over here. So let's start with this uh, brother here, and I'll go over here. I'll come to you in just a second. Oh, I'm sorry. I have uh, not enough coffee brain this morning. Sorry about that. Here, I'll go ahead and pop it up. There you go. Sorry. Does that help? Thank you. I love people who want to fill in all the blanks. That's great. Yes, brother. So the things uh, Paul is threatening when he comes, what kind of picture would that be? What, what, what would he have in mind? <laughs> the, action, yeah. the action is going to take. You know, we say a lot of times that interpreting these letters is like listening to one side of a phone conversation. Um, 
I don't think that's a, 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 you know, there's some ways that that analogy breaks down in terms of how we do Bible reading and interpretation, but there's, some, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, Paul is, is writing in a way that the Corinthians probably would have been keyed in to what he's alluding to there more. But it, but it may be that the ambiguity also is rhetoric, rhetorically strategic. He's not, gonna, he's not telling them exactly what's going to happen. But I think, I think in general, if you go and read chapter 13, where he kind of comes around, he again talks about this thing of the power of Christ being brought to bear against the false teachers. And um, for instance, he can, he can say that there are implications, like with the Corinthians in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, that um, their disobedience for some of them in relation to taking uh, the Lord's Supper led to some of them falling asleep, which is a, a euphemistic way of talking about death. So he can actually say that there were, there were implications of, of that where people have, have abused the Lord's Supper. By the way, I think the backdrop of that goes back to Judas. If you look in John's, boy, a striking image in John's gospel in chapter 13, uh, when Jesus is there having um, the Last Supper with the, you know, with the uh, disciples and doing the foot washing and all that kind of stuff, uh, he actually, um, when he is handing the bread to Judas, it's when he hands the dipping with Judas that Satan enters him. And that's, boy, that's a striking image, isn't it? That because he was falsely participating in what was going on there, it actually was very horrible and damaging spiritually and that kind of thing. So, Yeah, I mean, I think def- uh, there's no doubt that at least what Paul is talking about is that he's, he's going to put them out of the church in terms of church discipline. But I think he probably has something more in mind here like the power of Christ will be brought to bear. Like you, you'd see in Acts, you know, examples of him striking Elimus blind, you know, on the Isle of Patmos and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Okay? So it, it may be that kind of exertion of power that he's talking about. We don't know because he, he alludes to it without telling us specifically. Yeah, I think, that, I think that Paul may have in mind that some type of, of supernatural effect will be brought to bear. Now, I'm not saying that this needs to be normal practice in our church, okay? Some of you are saying, oh, rats. Uh, but, but it, uh, yeah, that's right, zap, you know. I, I tell you, I was doing a Bible study on James at a church in West Tennessee one time. And, uh, and it was a lovely time. You know, the church was kind of packed, and we were going through James. And we got into talking about church discipline. And there was this little lady who was in her 90s. And she had her buddies. They all sat together and prayed together. The church called them the wrecking crew. And so she, she shared. She wanted to share her example of church discipline. And she said, there were two guys in our church who were church leaders a while back. And they were just not right with God. And we prayed. And they died. And I said, you do not want this lady praying for you. You know, right. Uh, But, you know, sometimes God will bring to bear. I don't mean to make light of that. But, I mean, I think Paul is saying that sometimes, you know, there are, you know, the power of God can be brought to bear. Now, we need to be very, 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 very careful in how we think about this and application of it. 
Paul is living out an apostolic ministry in the Mediterranean world that is unique in some ways, right? And one of the things that God did as uh, the gospel was advancing in the world at that time is he manifested power in bearing witness to the gospel. We, we don't have time to go into that a great deal. Actually, the brothers and sisters in China, uh, miracles are retreating in some ways from the eastern parts of China, whereas they're still very active out in the western parts of China. And I asked the church in China, what, how do they read that? And they said, well, just like in Scripture, it seems like often when God is making inroads and establishing the gospel in a culture, you'll have more manifestations of power as God is taking the witness stand and bearing witness to the truth of the gospel in those places. You have this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, for instance, where God bears witness to the veracity of the gospel through, through power. Okay. All right, another question over here. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yes, I just wanted your guidance in terms of applying this and thinking through what Paul is going through in his ministry. Because I think as gospel workers, we can, because we're discipling uh, sinful people and it, it's groups of peoples, we can be exposed to maybe unhealthy church politics where human ambition, yeah. uh, malicious gossip, um, you, you can fall victim to those things. Yeah. Is it unfair to attribute them to you know, a spiritual warfare or a spiritual attack, because they're definitely disruptive, whether it's just they, they break apart a church or they affect the morale of a ministry worker or is, is Paul, because some of the things when you're reading them, you feel like, oh, I understand this. This is a kind of opposition yeah. from, you know, overly ambitious Christians who are yeah. speaking ill of him. Or is it just he, he's an apostle at a special time, let's be careful. It's not quite the same. Yeah. You can't relate to it. I don't think Paul would make a dichotomy between people who are just kind of being fleshly and human. In fact, he uses katasarka here, you know, according to the flesh, and the spiritual dynamics that are going on. I think he would see those as very much one thing, integrated kind of thing. Um, he's not making a, a strict dichotomy between kind of the human actions and the, and the spiritual world and, and that kind of thing. Um, but let me just respond this way. I would say that, first of all, you and I, it's so, it's so important what Paul has emphasized about just having a life of integrity and patterns of integrity in the church so that we're not setting up some of that opposition and misunderstanding and, and that kind of thing. We need to have accountability with a team of leaders around us so that we're walking together, praying together. And then as we face those kinds of moments in, in church life, and all of us do in ministry, we have messy moments where people are being ugly and they're being fleshly and they're being, you know, whatever. And, and we have those kind of moments and we need to be people who are in the midst of prayer about it and then just working really, really hard to teach the church and lead the church in those kinds of moments. Uh, knowing that it is spiritual warfare, so we need to make sure that we're spending time in prayer and, and addressing, you know, it spiritually but then also trying to be patient and help the church come along. We had a moment in our church years ago where a guy had been kind of the lead pastor for about 15 months, and there were some aspects of immaturity in his life that we really didn't know about. He was a great public speaker, but it just it, he actually ultimately ended up discerning that he wasn't called to be a lead, a, a lead pastor of a church, and 
Yet a lot of the things that were wrong and difficult were happening behind the scenes. So here he was, a great public speaker that a lot of people were real keen on. And then you had all this messy stuff going on behind the scenes simply because of his immaturity. So the elders, you know, praying about this, dealing with this, but the elders did not ask him to step down. He felt led by God to step down. It, it was a credit to his discernment. But we felt like it would be unhealthy for him and the church if we laid out all of his dirty laundry, if you will. He hadn't, he hadn't been immoral, but we felt like it would not be helpful to lay out all of the details of the ways that he had failed in leading, you know, behind the scenes and that kind of thing. And so what the elders decided to do is to say to the church, trust us that this is not a moral failure, but we, we all, including him, he stood in the middle of us and we all put our arms around each other. And uh, he said, you know, I just feel like God is leading me. And, uh, and that yet there were immature believers in the church that demanded to know why. You know, so we're in the middle of this meeting and the spirit is great. The elders are all have their arms around each other. And it, it was just a beautiful moment. And then this one sister who's wife of a good friend of mine, she's kind of immature in some things. She stood up in the meeting and said... Well, I just feel like I've been slapped in the face. And inside I was going, thank you, that is very helpful at this moment. You know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a, in that case, it's a, it's a form of immaturity. It is spiritual. It's a spiritual dynamic that's going on. But it just takes wisdom. And so what we as elders did at that point is we said, well, I understand that this is painful. This is not what any of us would want, but you're just going to have to trust us. And it took, it took a year for us to kind of come out of it. I actually felt led at that point to, to step in and try to help by being an interim pastor. I was not paid, but just felt I needed to give myself to the church for that transition to help us recover, you know, that moment. But it's, it's a mixed bag that, that takes wisdom and how do you help people who are immature come along and think biblically, maturely about things. You know, um, and, and at the same time doing spiritual warfare in terms of praying and, and coming against the forces that would, you know, corrupt and, and draw people away. It's a both-and kind of thing. Uh, George, Vianney has a question. I, I just want to give you an invitation to rebuke me on something. Oh, I'm, I'd be glad to do okay. that, Michael. Go ahead. So I, I know you're writing on Philippians at the moment, but it just strikes me in Philippians chapter 1 you have that, example where Paul says some preach Christ from wrong motives and yeah. rivalry, yet he rejoices because the yeah. gospel is being preached. It strikes me there is some differentiation here where it's another Jesus, another spirit, yeah. another gospel versus just the observation yeah. that there are people who are not fully authentic before the Lord, but at least the content of their message is actually acceptable. Yeah. That's very difficult to address. I'm not going to rebuke you. Uh, you're right. I think the Philippians situation is different from the Corinthians. Without going into it, um, <laughs> I think what is going on in Paul's situation in Rome as he's writing Philippians is there's a lot of public talk about Paul and his message. So, and and I can tell you more details if you want, but. But basically what I think he's talking about, you know how he says that, that Christ and my message has become known in the whole Praetorian Guard. So he's saying in the heart of Rome, in the power structures, governmental structures, everybody is talking about this because I'm in prison here, and for that I can rejoice. 
So the, the, bad, the false teachers he's alluding to in Philippi probably do include some people who are, who are false teaching, but mainly he's talking about people who are talking about Christ and the message in a way that it's just doing, they're doing it publicly, even while they're trying to hurt Paul as he's in prison and make his imprisonment worse and maybe even lead to his death. Um, I don't think he's talking about people who are formally Judaizers or something like that in that case. I think he's talking about just things are, are really out there in terms of in the air, in the public, uh, even for those who are speaking against Paul in his message. He says, well, at least Jesus is being talked about. Now, that takes a lot of defense. It's, one, it's the most difficult passage in, in Philippians to interpret in some ways, so we don't have time to unpack it here, but that's so I, you I'm should a, write a commentary about that. You think I should? Okay. Yeah. I'll, yes, we are. I'll think about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's let's have one more question, then we'll take then we'll take a break. Maybe two more questions. So okay. So yeah. the question here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. My question, and now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> maybe Sean would be would be happy and, and raise his hand in response to this one. But I wanted to ask in, in relation to verse five, like in in situations where. Uh, your colleagues, uh, mainly colleagues or, 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 and also friends, who are plugged in, in churches somewhere, but they are under uh, false teaching. Yeah. You see. And, and so, so they open the Bible and speak from the Bible, but in, in very unhelpful ways. Yeah. So how, how, do you respond in line, how do you respond in line with verse 5 in, in such to your To your friends? To, to my friends, yeah. to my colleagues. Yeah. yeah, I think, I am not saying this flippantly, I think you pray hard, you pray hard. You know, I, I mentioned my friend who I feel like has just gotten so confused and off, and, and you pray, so you pray hard, if, if there is a, a relationship there where you can do it, you sit down with them and try to reason through why they are thinking incorrectly according to the Bible or in theology. Um, very, tri- very tricky, very um, risky thing to do when you start br- confronting people about bad theology and bad teaching. But I think if you have the kind of relationship where you can do that with them, you sit down with them and try to reason through right thinking and right theology with them. And then the third thing you do is you build structures into your church so that the long-term project is to help, help people think correctly and, and think rightly. Uh, you, you know that the, the reality is... Um, those of you who are here and the good ministries that you're doing, our prayer is that that would have a ripple effect throughout history, right? We're not just building for, for next week or the sermon series next year. We're building for the future of South Africa and the church in South Africa, right? Um, I mean, that really is, we need to see that bigger picture, that that's what this is about, is, is trying to build solid theology. In our ministry in, um, in China, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about that ministry is I, as I think uh, it really is one of the many, many ministries going on there that is about the future of the church in China. Uh, because if we can get in there and lay a strong foundation biblically and theologically, it's going to really help lay a foundation for the church as freedom does come, if it does come. It's actually strikingly gotten more restricted in the last five to ten years rather than being more open Things have gotten hard in China in the, even in the last year because of new uh, restrictions that have been brought in by the Religion Bureau. All right, so um, that, that would be that. And then one, one final question. We're going to take a break, and then we'll come back and keep going. Uh, no, I don't need that. Thanks. Thank you. I just want to check the, the sorry, 
Yeah, in, in some ways it is, it is foundational like that. I think, I mean, it is striking in Acts 5, you know, the Ananias and Fire episode where they drop dead. And I actually asked my students from a literary standpoint, kind of a narrative standpoint, why is this here? Because, I mean, you know, you, you have only so much space. A scroll at that time when Luke was writing, a scroll, of, the biggest scroll available normally was only about 30 feet long. And the reason why that, why that was is because if it got any bigger, you couldn't carry the thing around, right? So Luke only has so much space, so why that story? And I think the reason is because at that foundational moment in the life of the church, the power was manifested because it, it just was such an important moment for the church to get that this is about purity and integrity and, and all of that kind of thing. I think Paul's apostolic ministry is similar to Peter's apostolic ministry in that sense, where you have this manifestation at that very unique time in history. I'm not saying that that, that never has happened again. Church history, we've had moments where God has manifested power in unique ways. But I do think what you're talking about is that uh, it did relate directly to the foundation of the church and the foundation of the teaching of the apostles as being so critical at that period of time. Remember, Paul's going around to churches in the Mediterranean world. There's never been a church in that city before in the, in the history of the world. People have never heard the gospel before. Uh, many of them may have been God-fearers in the local synagogue, if there was a local synagogue, but it's, it's, it's something brand new, and there is no New Testament for them to use. So the manifestation of power is concurrent with the establishment of the church in right teaching and right thinking, and so I think you're probably right about that, yeah. All right, let's take a uh, five-minute break, uh, stretch break, and get, grab some coffee or water, and we'll come back. This is a, is this a South African uh, five-minute break or a German five-minute break? It's a four-and-a-half-minute break. Okay, we'll see you back in just a minute.